Welcome to the first episode of the Classic Kicks podcast. I'm your host, Nick Santora, and today I'm talking to sneaker and sports industry analyst Matt Powell. Welcome to the program, Matt, and thanks for being here. Thanks, Nick. I really appreciate you having me on. It's great to be on the inaugural broadcast. All right, let's get right into it. Would you mind telling our listeners who you are and what you do? Sure. Well, I started out my retail career um, with a department store in Boston in, in the 70s. Um, I worked there for 20 years, and then I switched over and worked in the sports industry. Um, I was uh, a merchant at uh, a chain called Sport Mart, which at the time was the largest big box sporting goods retailer in the country. Um, now it's part of Sports Authority. Um, I was the chief merchant at a chain called Sneaker Stadium in New Jersey that was a sneaker superstore. Uh, we sold 1,500 styles of sneakers, um, which is impossible to keep track of when you just have that many. Um, I worked for uh, Models in New York. Uh, I, uh, the, the second coolest job after the one I'm doing right now, um, I was the chief merchant at a, at a website in Chicago uh, called MVP.com that was started by uh, John Elway, Michael Jordan, and Wayne Gretzky. And so I got to work with those guys. And it was at the very beginning of the dot-com boom. And we, we really learned a lot about, about the sports business and how to sell stuff on the Internet. Did you really work directly with those three guys? Yeah, we saw LA a lot. Um, uh, we didn't see as much of Jordan and, and Gretzky, but we got to meet all of them for sure, and uh, um, and spend some time with them. And uh, uh, I, I would say Jordan Jordan is a very good businessman, and Elway is a very good businessman. We had uh, again Elway was he had the most skin in the game, and and uh, so consequently he was the most involved. But um, uh, and we got to you know we had a couple of celebrity parties and. Uh, saw a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali came. Uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Brandy Chastain was there. Jeanette Lee, the, the Black Widow pool player, was. I saw Jeanette Lee shoot a, a cue ball out of Wayne Gretzky's mouth while he was lying on his back on top of a pool table. So, this, this is before yeah, cell phones. That was the kind of stuff that was going on. <laughs> um, and then, and then when I when that burned down, because um, we 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 really launched the site about the day the dot com bubble burst, and and uh, uh, it, it was clear we weren't going to be able to go on. And so I, I actually then I had met a couple of hedge fund managers who used to seek my opinion on what was happening in the industry, and they came to me and said, "Hey, we, we, we their exact words were, we always thought you got the joke, and." Uh, We'd like to pay you to do research for us on the sports industry. So that was uh, 16 years ago, and um, uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. Uh, I have a, uh, my current job is the sports industry analyst with the MP, M, NPD Group, um, and we're the, the, the largest uh, market research company in the United States, focused on consumer goods, um, and um, I have access to point-of-sale data, I have access to consumer panel data, um, and mostly what I do is travel around the country speaking to the top retailers and the top brands about um, current trends in the industry and what I think is going to be happening next. And uh, um, so I, I, my, my role really is to interface with the senior management at, uh, at all the major brands and retailers um, and some smaller ones as well. What is the information, and how do you get access to it? Sure. Well, 
the, most of the major retailers in the industry provide us their point of sale data um, for free. And the reason that they do that is we then give them access to the aggregate of the data and access to me um, to help them understand what's happening. You know, typically a retailer will know what's happening in their store. They know what they're selling or what they're not selling, but they don't know what the industry's doing. And so it's to their advantage to contribute uh, their information to us. And so I don't get to see any any individual retailer's data, um, but but I do get to see the aggregate. Um, and, uh, I study that. I spent a lot of time studying what's happening and our, our system is very robust. I can, I can really look all the way down to the style level, um, and channel level, that kind of thing. So I, I'm, uh, I have a very deep, uh, view of what's happening in the industry. And then the second piece is, um, is that we have a vast consumer panel, um, who tell us, what they bought, where they bought it, what they plan to do with it, who they bought it for, what they paid for it. Um, and we then can layer that consumer panel information over the uh, point of sale data and really have a total view of, uh, of the marketplace in the U.S. And, and our sports industry is an interesting one in that we're able to um, – we have sports uh, offices in uh, many countries around the world – um, 20 odd countries around the world. So I'm able to get a view of what's happening in the sports business in say Brazil, um, and Germany and, uh, and so forth. So I have a, I have a much more global picture, um, which is really what you have to have today to understand the sneaker market. The reason I asked you about your credentials is because I noticed there's some people on Twitter that like to come at you once in a while. Who are your followers and what are these debates usually about? Um, most of the people who who've stayed with me I seem to agree with me. It's the uh, uh, it's the guys who don't, and it's really interesting. I I finally started blocking people, which I kind of was reluctant about. I guess some someplace I read you you're not supposed to do that or something. So protocol. But um, I started blocking people, and I pr- I probably blocked ten people, and all of a sudden the vitriol just dropped. Hmm. From you know, I mean, they, I still there are still people who want to mix it up, but most of the people who have my tweet's been shared by somebody, and they're not actually a follower. And uh, um, yeah, so yeah. It, I, I, I'm not getting into nearly the kind of big, long, drawn-out Twitter wars that I was in the beginning. And what are the what are these what are these people usually debating you about? What is, is there like? Is there one well, constant? Yeah, I think the constant is that they're they're all fans of whoever I'm not saying something nice about, and the, and. They must spend all day long on Twitter looking for someone who's saying something bad about the person they like. I mean, there's there's a little dust up today with with the Steph Curry story about getting disrespected by Nike, and uh, you know I went back to a bunch of my Nike friends and said, did you know did this really happen? And no one would admit to it. And I these are people I trust. This is not PR people and stuff. These are people that I've known a long time. And and everybody said we we've never heard anything about this. So it, it says to me it probably didn't happen. So I've tweeted out this morning that I can't corroborate that this has happened. And people are telling me I'm calling Steph Curry a liar and you know, blah blah blah. I'm like, well, where's that coming from? I'm all I'm telling you is what I couldn't corroborate the story with people who ought to know about it. Yeah, you're just putting some more facts into the universe that people exactly. should just, you know, consider. Exactly. And they and they said consider the source, 
you know, meaning that, you know, Del Curry's probably got a chip on his shoulder, and I wouldn't blame him, all right? I mean, look, Nike fucked up here. They they should have, they, there's no way in hell this kid should have gotten away. And and it's the biggest, I, I've called it the biggest PR embarrassment uh, of my entire tenure in following Nike. And, and uh, um, so from that point of view, I, I've been very critical of Nike, but I'm also saying I don't know that Nike actually disrespected the guy. Did they not give him a contract? Yeah. And that, in, in one way, is disrespecting. But did they come in and purposely, you know, uh, mispronounce his name and, and that kind of stuff? I, Nike doesn't do shit like that. They're, they're very calculated, but they're they're always professional. Yeah, I mean, even when I see you these know? videos, anyway. like last week with Mark Parker, I mean, it seems like everything. All these guys, even I don't. Did you watch the John Wexler? Uh, thing that was on the uh, yesterday from like the morning show i mean yep. these guys are very it's very well calc everything seems very well calculated that's for sure right yeah wex was saying the boot nasa is not making any more boost product it's like nasa doesn't make boost product what what are you talking about man so since when does nasa make anything that's sold i mean <laughs> that they have developed the product yes they certainly did but they're, they're not making it silly anyway but that seems to be the theme. It's like I keep running into fanboys who uh, who want to protect whoever whoever they're a fan of, and and that, they're the ones who want to fight. And 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 then and typically, you know, I'll I'll just prove something they say twice, and then they start calling me fat old man or something. So. <laughs> well, I, I I saw one of your one of your recent tweets when you said Complex was a fanboy magazine so, or fanboy publication. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty funny. I like to tweak those guys because I, I, they piss me off because they just, they really don't want to talk about the truth. They don't want to talk about what's going on in the business. They don't want to help kids understand it. All they want to talk about is, ooh, another color of the whatever's coming out this weekend. You know, and it's like, come on, that's, where, how is that doing, you know? Is it all about anybody? clicks? Is it just clicks? It's like, talk about Kanye and get the most traffic and then get the most advertising. You know, it's like, I mean, you look at yeah. them, right? They're just getting all their info from Nike and now maybe Adidas. So they'll never, they'll never say anything disparaging about anything. It's just everything is awesome. Buy it, buy it, buy it every Saturday, right? Exactly. Well, and I, I think you know, whether they live on, they live on getting access to photographs of shoes before anybody else does, and they live on getting access to. Uh, you know uh, the designers and that kind of stuff to to, to uh, for content, um, and so if they start saying something bad about a brand, the brand is just is probably not going to going to cooperate with them as much. Um, that that uh, consequently means the product they turn out is complete junk. Yeah, and it's funny because I, even though I criticize them, they reach out to me all the time to say. What do you think about this? Or, or, uh, or they're, or they're quoting me. And, and one of the things I started to do on Twitter a lot is like to really tweet out news from the industry. And um, I'll put something out, and, and an hour later, Complex will, uh, uh, will, will have a story up about it, not quoting me or anything, referring me. But I'm almost helping them find the, the next story that's, uh, that's interesting for the, for the uh, industry. Now they did. Uh, Nick Nick DePaula did say, uh, you know, he put me as one of the most influential writers this last year. So uh, <laughs> occasionally they'll throw me a bone. Um, but but at the same time, what does that mean? I mean, if, if I think their audience is bullshit and their publication is bullshit, then an endorsement of me is essentially bullshit. Yeah. So. 
So, I mean, what, like, what are these, you know, because some of the stuff that I feel like you're, you're debating with people on is the, the actual influence that so-called sneakerheads have in, like, the overall industry, right? So, I mean, what, you know, what, what does all this mean? I mean, and even just kind of two-part question, like, you mentioned how Nike letting Steph go was a blunder. Do you think, in a way, just letting Kanye go with Adidas and just giving him that buzz is also a mistake, or is it on a totally separate level? Well, I, I, I mean, it, it really depends on the on the uh, on the celebrity, doesn't it? I think you know, like our company put out a, re- a release a, a month or so ago that said that one of the most forceful endorsers in this fashion industry is Rihanna. Um, that she has just tremendous uh, uh, following by her by her fans who who really want to emulate her. And about then was when Puma released the Creeper. Um, and and their business, Puma's women's sneaker business in the U.S. was up almost fifty percent last year. This so, this was after know, Rihanna, think, you're saying? After Rihanna, mm-hmm. and, and so she, and, and look, they only made ten thousand pairs of her shoe or something like that. So it wasn't it wasn't about that they sold a lot of pairs. It was that she gave them credibility. Yeah. So you know, I think certain celebrities can give you a lot of credibility. Um, and certain celebrities are, uh, you know, loved and hated. Um, and, and other celebrities really, you know, they might have sold some records, but they don't have a lot of juice. And, and so, you know, at the end of the day, Nike didn't want to pay Kanye and and let him go. And Nike does not pay celebrities to, to endorse their products. Other brands do. Um uh, uh, you know, Puma paid for Rihanna. They're paying for Kylie. Um, obviously, uh, Adidas is paying Kanye. Um, and just, but to some extent, even though Rihanna helped here, uh, helped Puma, I, I think that devalues the relationship, right? And and uh, I, I think the kid knows who's getting paid and who's not getting paid. And then so, if if a celebrity really wants to wear your stuff because they like it. Um, I think that means a lot, and if somebody has to get paid to wear your stuff, I think it, I think it really kind of devalues that relationship. But big picture thing, uh, I mean, Rihanna's probably the only one that I could point to that I could say really moved the needle in, in all the years I've been doing this. Wait, you're saying more so than Kanye? And, uh, yes, absolutely. I, I don't I don't see... I don't see the kind of effect... Uh, well, and here's my evidence on Kanye. Sales were negative for Adidas when they signed him, and they got worse. And it took a year and a half for the sales at Adidas to turn around. And and the timing of that was absolutely simultaneous with Adidas finally releasing product that was appropriate for the U.S. market. Um, And so in my opinion, the the turnaround that Adidas was all about product and not about endorsement. If, If he had such power... Why, why did it take a year and a half for the business to turn around? Because, I mean, they're really not making any pairs either, right? I mean, what are they really – they have to do it. Yeah, well, they're not making any pairs of issue. That's right. Um, uh, but but I, I just don't see and, – and look, I don't want to give Rihanna too much too much credit here because Puma had a tiny women's business. So, you know, it, it wasn't like she added hundreds of millions of dollars of sales here. It's, it was more – it was it's a much smaller number than that. Um so I, at the end of the day, my, my sense is that all, every celebrity's reach and influence is relatively limited. Um, I think you need them. 
Um, uh, I think just like you need athletes playing in your product to, to have credibility. Um, but I don't really think you can point to any, any celebrity or any athlete said, you know, this is driving hundreds of millions of dollars of business. What should Adidas do next to help make sure that the buzz they have now snowballs into something greater? Right. Well, I, I think, and I, and I have this criticism of every brand, not just Adidas, that they do these collaborations, whether it's with Ronnie or with a music artist or, or, or whatever. And the shoes sell out, 5,000, 10,000 pairs kind of thing. And there's never an attempt to really commercialize an idea to say that, you know, Ronnie does a lot of ice cream colors as an example. So he makes a shoe, does a collaboration, the shoe blows out. Why isn't there six months later a more moderately priced shoe in that color uh, available in general? in the general line yeah. as an example um if nmd is blowing out why isn't there a less expensive version of nmd available at famous footwear not today because it, it, you want you want that halo to continue but it's in the cadence of new product releases that for back to school there will be a moderate version of nmd and we're going to sell 10 million pairs yeah and and we just don't we don't do that. Nike Nike probably does it best, and they don't do it well. And and there every, every other brand I think is just leaving business on the table. You know the the one time it's a little bit of an old reference now. It might have been ten years ago, but the one the one time I really saw someone on that was was the freaking Converse did the John Varvado slip on with the elastic instead right. of the laces, right. and it was like one season yeah. later that it seemed like that shoe was everywhere. Right, they did a whole laceless thing. Exactly what I'm talking about, and and so there there are a lot of really good conceptual ideas that come out of these collaborations. Um, there are also a lot of horrible ideas that come out of these collaborations. But but to me, I would have somebody out there really thinking about, okay, how do I leverage this or how do I leverage that? And um, uh, and and I don't think we do a good enough job of that. And then, but that's to me the commercialization of, of a good idea. That's how you make money. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the point of the collabs in a way too, is to try to give some juice to a style that that might be under the radar. You know? Sure. But you know, I'm talking about sneakerheads. You know, sneakerheads always say how influential they are. And I and I ask the question, okay, I'm walking down the street. How do I know who's a sneakerhead? And how is he influencing me? <laughs> and then you want to say, okay, you're not the core customer. So, okay, how is he influencing the guy who's walking next to him? If he doesn't know, how do you know? What is he, you know, is it a secret handshake or something? I just, you know, uh, look, I know they buy a lot of shoes and I know they love shoes and I, I really respect their passion and their, and, and, and their commitment to, to something that they love. But, uh, you know, I, I think their influence is really limited to other sneakerheads and that's about it. Yeah, I think you're that's right. why I talk about the 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 echo chamber all the time, right? It's just like an idea comes in the sneakerhead echo chamber and bounces off all the walls, and everybody thinks it's a big idea, but it never gets out of the echo chamber. I mean, we did seventeen and a half billion dollars at retail last year in the U.S. in sneakers, and so somebody who gets a couple of hundred pair, I mean, Nike made three hundred million pairs of shoes last year for the U.S. <laughs> That's enough for every man, woman, and child. That's yeah, crazy. Well, it's crazy, too. It used to be like about where did you get those and having stuff that nobody else has. Now it's like it's about getting the stuff that everybody else wants. And I wonder how much of it yep. with these sneakerheads. I mean, I guess a good amount's being worn, but 
I don't, you know, how are these shoes flipping for all this money just within the same kids? Like here, at, it's just in these conventions and all yeah, this. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it's a collectibles market now. It's like Beanie Babies, right? Mm. It's just I have something rare, and it's I can flip it. And 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 look, there's a whole other layer that have come into this space that are doing nothing but flipping. I mean, they don't they don't have any love for the product. They don't have any sense of the legacy of of Jordan or, or what life was like back then. Um, they're just in it for the flip. Um, and consequently, they're causing the kids, people who really love the product, to have to pay a lot more money, and that, and that that's exploitive, in my opinion. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the reasons you've seen Jordan in the last year really start to ramp up the um, the number of pairs in a release, um, and it's caused the uh, it's caused the resale market to collapse and in, in, up to a point. Are the Not are the altogether. are these restocks anything significant, or are they just kind of PR things to get to get a little? Uh, yeah, those traffic. are more PR things. Yeah, those are, yeah, those are more PR things. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, the ultimate the ultimate story is really is really yet to come, which is which is customization. Um, and and I'm I'm sorry, I'm a bigger idea than Nike ID, where you you really are able to. Uh, with, with 3D printing and, and onshore manufacturing and so forth, really, really design a shoe that's just for you. Do, does Nike um, for like the NBA players? I mean, I'm assuming they're doing like a mold of a player's foot and really. I mean, are, there, are, there, are NBA players wearing the same shoes that we're buying at the store? Or are they are they more personalized like that? Although, absolutely, they're all custom made shoes. They look like the shoe you're buying off the off the rack. Um, and, and there have been the occasional player who's who's claimed that he bought, he uh, wears a shoe off the rack. I really find that difficult to believe. Guys who are making millions and millions of dollars are not going out with a hundred and twenty-five dollar shoe on. Um, uh, it's uh, you know that's they, they, that's risking their entire career. And so these shoes are really their tools, and and uh, and 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 they're custom made. So they cosmetically they look like what's on the rack, but that's not what really what you're buying. You know, it's funny, like, you still hear, I think maybe even Charles Barkley was the one who said, who blamed Fila for Grand Hill's career, but didn't, I mean, Michael Jordan broke his foot the first year he was wearing Air Jordans, wasn't he out his whole, that whole, right. that whole season? Nobody ever mentions him, right? Right, exactly. They talk about Rose instead, which yeah. is just, you know, it's just a sad story. I mean, it, 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 I don't think it had anything to do with the shoe. I just think, you know, the guys had some, a string of bad luck, and, uh, uh, but you know, you, he went from being a, what could have been a real force to being, um, you know, a footnote at this point. What's up with Adidas and Hoops? I mean, they have some good players, but they just well, they'll never. Will they ever? I mean, is, is should we be looking out for Under Armour more than than Adidas in the upcoming years? Well, I, I think I, I, look, Curry is Curry is a once in a lifetime kind of situation. Um, and so I, I don't I don't know that any brand is uh, is is really going to leverage a, a player like like they are right now, and, and there are indications, Nick, that the that the um, marquee basketball business trend as a fashion trend is is really slowing up, um, and you know people people act like marquee basketball has been a hot hot category. It's really only been hot for the last three years or so. When we go back to you go back into the uh, uh, you know 2008 2009 the basketball business was awful um, and uh, it, it lit up um, and, and ran hot for a, a bit and uh, it feels like it's cooling off again hmm. and and what's really hot now is retro running it's just amazing what's happening there yeah I mean you see everything with the jogger pants and the retro runners what um yep exactly. 
I mean, what's your take on like what what you know? I see Asics has a lot of collabs, and they I see a lot of people wearing Asics. But then there's also Saucony. Diodora's been making some buzz lately. Even I just saw recently that Brooks is relaunching the Heritage. I mean, what? What, what do these companies with the retro runners have to do specifically to get kids that didn't grow up on these shoes to care about it? Is it really just kind of luck and to produce these shoes when the trends come back around to it? Or is there, is there, more, that, is there more to do, do you think, with these, with these smaller companies? Well, I think there's two things. I think, that, first of all, it's a unique product. We haven't seen it, and, and, and I think the, the young kid today is very focused on, on unique. He, he wants to be special. He wants to look, you know, I, I use the phrase, I want to be different just like my friends, um, you know. So I want to wear a sneaker, but I don't want to wear the same one everybody else is wearing. Um, and then really important on the brand side, and, and, and some of the early, uh, some of the early uh, entrants into retro running didn't understand this and had to go back. The, the kid is demanding that the product be modern. Um, you know, the shoes back in the days were heavy. Um, it used stiff materials. Um, they weren't as well made. They weren't as finished as they were. So I, I, I keep saying to brands, the kid wants a modern retro shoe. He wants a modern fit with a modern manufacturer in modern materials, modern weight, and modern colors. And um, if you try to bring their shoe back exactly out of the vault, there will be a few insiders who know that shoe and may buy, buy a couple of pairs. But if you want to do some volume, you really got to make um, a, a shoe that looks like the old shoe, um, but is, is really a modern, a modern made shoe. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because you have some people that are like super purist on that. They want it exactly like it was. But yeah. I think with anything in yeah. life, it's like you remember your last memory of it, right? You don't remember the actual thing or your memory is from when you were nine years old. So what the hell do you remember? Exactly. And, and in some cases, you know, we, for instance, Jordan really comes under fire for this, for not having, you know, making the shoe exactly the same way. In some ways, it's impossible, right? I mean, the materials that were used back then don't exist anymore. People aren't making those materials. They've moved on to other things. The manufacturing techniques have changed. Um, and, uh, and, and so it's impossible. And then, you know, you go back to some of the early Jordans that were made out of Italian leather. You know what those shoes would cost today if we could say went back to making with Italian leather. So, uh, it's, um, uh, you know, the, the remastered Jordan program did okay. Um, uh, but for all the clamoring that they wanted a better, a better made shoe, um, it, 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 they didn't really buy it, uh, with any more, um, uh, excitement than they did the original the, the product they were criticizing you know i was noticing a few weeks ago when they released the jordan 30 and the four retro the remastered four in the same day the four retro was 20 dollars more it was 220 and the air jordan 30 was 200 <laughs> exactly well again I, I think it's important to remember that the the early the especially the early retro jordans were really um significantly different in terms of make than the shoes that were available in the back in the day. And um, so if you, if you sort of go back and say, okay, what did we look like $1988 uh, and what that shoe cost then to what it costs now? Um, they're, 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 it's relatively kept up with inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, so, uh, and, and then the, mo- the modern techniques, 
that we're using today um, take out so much of the labor in, in making the shoe, and that's where a huge expense is. So, um, you know, 3D printing and, and this commercial, uh, this mechanical knitting stuff that's out there um, really have had a profound effect on uh, taking costs out of, out of the footwear. I kind of cut you off a little bit when you were talking about the customization. You know, uh, you want to? Can you elaborate on that a little bit more of like what what you see coming in the future? Sure. Sure. Well, I, again, the, in terms of customization and really making an individualized shoe, I, I think consumers want personalized products. They want something that's just for me that nobody else has. And with 3D printing, um, very expensive today to do it. Um, but as we get better at it and, we, and the technology advances are coming so fast today, um, we'll get better at it very quickly. Uh, the ability to go into a shop and there's a 3D printer right there that can, can make an outsole and uh, forming an, a one-piece outsole uh, with no waste um, and made specifically to my foot specifications. You know, my, my left foot is a half a size smaller than my right foot. Um, and there are a lot of people with that kind of anomaly in their in their uh, in their footwear, um, high arch, low arch, that kind of thing. Um, so you go in, you have a computer scan your foot, um, and uh, and you decide what materials you want and colors and and uh, even styling. Um, and you got one machine that's that's 3D printing the outsole, and you got another machine that's uh, that's knitting the upper. And two hours later, you got a shoe. So, and we're not far away from that. We really are not. It's it's not going to happen in sixteen or seventeen, but could happen by twenty five. Absolutely. Is this going to be? I mean, it seems like just you talking about this. It seems like. I mean, are we going to see more of brand owned stores, or is this going to be done in? in I mean, what's the future for a mom, any such thing as a mom and pop shop, or even these sneaker boutiques? Are they going to keep existing? Well, I think I think there always will be multi brand stores. Uh, let me start with that uh, as a concept that you know that some consumers want to compare across brands. They don't. They don't have uh, an affiliation with just one brand, and and so they they will gravitate to a multi-brand store. And some of, some of the larger stores that do real volume can afford to have the equipment in the store to um, uh, to, to make a shoe right there. Um, I think we'll see more mono brand stores. Clearly, the greatest growth we're seeing today in the industry is coming out of um, uh, brands as retailers. Um, Nike said at their investor day that they do a billion dollars today in e-commerce, um, and in five years they're going to do seven billion dollars. Wow. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, that's going to force force some people out of business and we're already seeing brands across the spectrum going out and saying uh, it, it is no longer cost effective for me to do business with a mom and pop. Uh, it costs me just as much to service that account as it does a, a multi-store account. It costs me just as much to, to do the credit check and the invoicing and collection as it does for a multi-brand store. And, and it's just no longer worth it. And, you know, this has really been, I remember back in the, in the 70s and 80s, you know, Levi went through this. When Levi was a ubiquitous brand, they were sort of the Nike of the day back then. And they went out and said, "We're not. We're going to 
if you don't buy X amount of a product, we're not going to sell you, or you can only buy from this catalog and you can only have access to these items, and um, and that's it. And there's no service. Um, and uh, we've but we've been on a trail now where the where the brands have been going out to mom and pops already and saying we're um, uh, we're not going to be able to uh, get get you the best products anymore. And I think if you look at it from the brand's point of view and you think about what those stores look like, they didn't necessarily represent the brand in the way the brand wanted to go to retail. Um, they, you know, they were tired stores, uh, um, family, you know, really were a mom and pop running it. And, um, and in the presentations just were not the kind of presentations that if you think about what a, a Flight 23 store looks like, or the new foot action concept, or House of Hoops. Um, you, you know that those are really, really cathedrals to uh, to the brand, and and uh, a small retailer just cannot cannot pull that off. Um, you went to the uh, you went to the Nike. What was it called? The Nike Innovation Summit. Yeah, the Nike Innovation Summit. Yeah, I was there last week. So what um, what'd you take from it? What was the best shoe? What's I mean, is the power lacing something we need, or is it just a gimmick? I mean, what? Tell me, tell me, tell me what what was going on over there. Well, so then let's talk about the uh, first of all. It's not really a self lacing shoe as all, as it's been described in the press. You you can adjust the tightness of the laces mechanically, um, so it it doesn't actually lace up. You you, you put your foot in and then and you push a button and it tightens. And if you decide it's too tight or you, your feet are tired later in the day, you can loosen it. But and so someone someone described it to me as a solution in search of a problem. Um, but when I spent some time really talking to the Nike execs about it, 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 it's very clear that this is the first step towards having footwear that is truly adaptable. And what they mean by that is that having a shoe that senses that it's too tight and loosens it or your feet are hot or your heel is slipping around and needs to be uh, uh, tightened up um, and, and responds to you know, your feet swelling or, or, you, or you've walked uh, 10,000 steps and, and you now need to have a different area of pavement change. So their, their grand vision here is that you have this shoe that really knows what you, what you need and changes. Um, and, and, you know, right now it's, it doesn't do anything close to that, but I, that's the grand vision. So I think it's really interesting. We're, we're a ways away from it. I think this is very much of a beta kind of a story. Um, I, I don't know how commercial it's really going to be, but, uh, boy, has it gotten a lot of press. I, there were, I read the, the day after the, uh, innovation summit, there were something like 500 press mentions on this product. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it went across everything. I mean, every type of publication yeah. website, it was up yeah. and down on the board it was it was talked about yep absolutely movie magazines tech magazines <laughs> fanboy magazines all of it <laughs> i like how you keep using <laughs> the uh term fanboy i'm sure that doesn't uh that doesn't win you any fans either on twitter no it probably doesn't. <laughs> on a side note before but, i forget thank you for all the retweets for all the retweets absolutely look, look you could, it's really unique stuff and people based on the retweets that I get from retweeting you really like it. I mean, I think there's a, it's really fun to see this old, this old stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, I spent some time with, um, with the guys at feel up both in Vegas and then afterwards and, and got to see some of their retro product. And I mentioned the John Epstein back in the day when I first started out in retail, I was merchandising uh, men's better sportswear and, 
we carried, you know, Missoni and Armani and, and, and so forth. Um, and we actually bought Fila tennis wear and merchandise at next to Armani. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was as expensive as Armani at the time. And, um, and, 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 and by the way, in, in the seventies and, and early eighties, the sexy sport was tennis. Yeah. Nobody remembers that, but you know, basketball is a hot sport now or whatever, but back then tennis was the sexy sport and everybody played tennis. Um, we sold, you know, a Jimmy Connors line, uh, um, uh, in, in, in the, my, the restore that I worked for. Um, and then, and then we took the field line, the board product and, uh, um, put it in, uh, in our better sportswear area. And anyway, long story, they've now come back out. They had the sweater, although it was made in acrylic. The sweater I have was made of wool, but they had exactly the same sweater I carried back in the 80s from that was part of the tennis line. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, really, it's really fun to see how some of this stuff circles back. Yeah, I mean, I feel like some of the, I feel like with the kids, it's almost like a 20-year cycle. Like 10 years ago, when I was in my 20s, I wanted the stuff I grew up in the 80s. Now, the past, whatever, five, six years, it's all about, you know, what the kids grew up in in the 90s. Yep. And now they're really desirous of having the 90s back again, for sure. I, I, I saw the other day, I was in an airport where I am far too much now, but um, I was in an airport where... Uh, I saw the Rolling Stone has an, uh, an issue on the '90s, um, and it's it's really about the the television shows that, that they're bringing back and or, or re- reviving or just showing reruns of shows that were uh, that the, the, the this generation saw when they were younger, and um, and now they're, everything's coming back and uh, that was uh, that was hot. You're going to bring up another but, point. Oh, I was going to say one other, one other interesting thing that's happening today is in terms of a topic that I talk a lot about when I meet with the brands and retailers is is how fast the fashion cycles are moving today. Uh, now, if you go back in the history, the, the 70s were really the, the, the era of running shoes and the 80s were the year era of basketball shoes and the 90s were the decade of cross-training shoes. And and then cycles seem to go to eight years and then five. And if I'm right about this marquee basketball trend being over, it lasted three years. Mm-hmm. And that's an, it's an interesting problem for the industry because it typically takes concept to retail 18 months to get a shoe to market. Mm-hmm. And that's if everybody is really working it and hitting on all cylinders. And so if you have 18 months to get a new idea to, mar- to market and it's only going to last three years, y- y- you really have to be moving very, very fast. Um, I think ultimately it's a plus for the industry because if the fashion cycles are changing that quickly, it really means that the, um, uh, the consumer has to buy a lot more product. Um, that, that, you know, if I was, if I bought a, a marquee basketball shoe last year, uh, this year, I got to buy a, a, a retro running shoe. Um, that's good for the industry because it means we're, we're selling even more product, but logistically manufacturing R and D wise, um, the industry really has to go through some changes here. With, um, yeah, I mean, is there always going to be a place for retro stuff with everything just in the world seeing, being, you know, technology advancing so quickly, it seems, in all aspects of life? I mean, do you think there'll still be still be need for retro product moving forward? Is it always going to be with us? Well, yeah, that's interesting. I had a conversation with a tech running brand the other day who's making some retro product, um, and we we had a long philosophical discussion about coming out with 
retro uppers on performance outsoles. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm I'm very much in favor of this idea. I think that, I think there's a great opportunity there for someone who wants to have a shoe they can run in, um, but it, that looks fashion right, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mo- most of the technical running shoes today don't really look fashion right any longer. They they look they look old. And uh, it, but you're you're 100 right to point out that the technology we are in the absolutely in the golden age of technology here in the sneaker business. And um, the, uh, uh, the the number of new uh, fresh tech techniques of manufacturing uh, of sourcing products. Uh, and then the technologies that are actually going into the products are, are mo- coming in faster and faster. So, you know, at some point we'll move off this retro cycle. We, every, every category changes. Um, uh, yeah, I think we'll see a little bit of, of a boost around technology um, at the Olympics. Um, brands typically hold um, uh, new technologies to introduce them during the Olympics uh, and let the athletes really showcase them. Uh, that's what we saw with the Nike Innovation Summit. A lot of the products that we saw there will will make their debut at the Olympics. Um, so uh, there'll, there'll probably be a little bump up in technical running. I don't know that we're ready to come back to technical running as a fashion cycle yet. Um, I, I almost look at at, at, at fashion as a, as a dialectic kind of a thing where it isn't a return to something. It's uh, it's uh, uh, moving up the ladder it's it's similar to what we did but it's different and um and and that's what keeps the fashion cycles moving through so um i'm I'm very excited but but at the same time i just talking about how long will retro running last there are so many styles in the bulk it's not like we're dependent on one or two uh products that really drive this business the the ability of the brands to cadence in the next retro shoe and the next retro shoe that really looks different than the last one we had um, may may sustain this this uh, particular trend uh, a little bit longer i have to give some credit to adidas it seems like they they did an interesting thing with kind of doing new stuff that kind of goes back to the old stuff and releasing it in the originals line i mean the original stuff me going in the original store in, in Soho for the past year or two, I said it looks like a Scandinavian Sweet 16 party in there, you know? Yep, yep. But, I mean, this, yep. new, this new stuff's yeah. looking good. Absolutely. And, I, again, I, I, I really – people ask me what was the turnaround of Adidas. We touched on this earlier. But I think what, what they committed when Mark King came in as president, they committed to getting the product right in the U.S. And you've been in this business a long time. You know, they're always the criticism of Adidas was the brand was too Eurocentric. And they moved more than 100 people, maybe as many as 200 people from Germany to Portland, Oregon, to immerse them in the United States market and for them to really understand what the United States consumer wants. And, you know, the, the the United States only represents 45% of the of the sneaker business worldwide, but it's clearly still the epicenter of where most of the fashion in the sneaker world is coming from. And I really credit the hard work of that of that 150 people that they moved over here to to what's made Adidas turn around. Um, the product I'm seeing, whether it's it's a retro product like you described, or the or tubular or the or the Boost X. Um, I'm I'm just blown away at how spot on that product is. What's going on with the Adidas Brooklyn space? Do you know anything about that? I mean, I remember them talking about it last no, year. No, you know, I 
I was told they were, those guys got could start in September, and then I've heard more recently that they haven't started yet or they're just starting now. Um, there's not been a lot of chatter about that. Um, I'm going to see Mark King soon, and, and I'm going to ask him about it. But I, uh, I have not heard a lot of buzz about what's happening with, uh, with Brooklyn. So everything's still just coming out of Portland. Yeah, still. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, Under Armour's building a huge office over there now. Um, there's just a, there's so much talent in that town, and, I, and that doesn't mean just Nike talent. There's just there's so much talent in that town. Even even stuff like Dwayne Edwards and the and the pencil kids. Uh, um, the University of Oregon has a sports product management program now in Portland, um, and uh, there's just there's just a lot of really smart people doing work there, and uh, uh, so I, I think every every brand knows that if they want to have some of that talent they probably have to have an office there because people just like me living in maine i don't want to live anywhere else people live in portland oregon don't want to live anywhere else thank you so much i really appreciate you doing this Sure. well this is fun when if it works maybe we'll do a follow-up this wraps up the first episode of the classic kicks podcast i'd like to thank matt powell for joining us and thank everybody out there for listening we'll catch you next time